This morning's reading is Romans 9, verses 14 through 24. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel or honorable, for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Well, I hope you're ready for part two of the Easy Sermon series. This sermon could be kind of titled, When the Bible Blows Your Mind. Um, there's, it, it's actually um, quite a personal text for me. When I was in seminary back in 1990, uh, I had to come to terms with this idea of, of God's sovereignty. Now, I, I understood God's sovereignty to the degree that, you know, it was, it's helpful in times of disaster and protection and you're, you're hoping, um, you know, that cancer comes into the family and I'm holding on to God's sovereignty. I understood that and appreciated it. But what I had to come to terms with is how is God sovereign over the salvation of people? I mean, what, what, what he's saying is that the eternal destinies of men and women are resting in the hand of God. I would have always thought resting in my hands. And so I had to come to terms with this. And so as we work through this, um, what I had to recognize is the way I was reasoning and the logic that I normally use in life wasn't helping me so much. It was causing some conflict, and I was almost brought to a place of, does Scripture stand over my reason and intellect? Do I submit to it, or do I reason my way through it? And, and I bend and adjust Scripture to, to adjust to my logic. And that's what you're going to be forced to do when you, you're going to do one or the other with this text. So I want to look at this text in, in two, like two barrels. Uh, you know that it's a protest, so, um, well, well, before I get there, you know, we've been in Romans 8, theology of the gospel, great news, right? At the end of Romans 8, what do we hear? There's nothing that will cause us to be separated from God. That's a great promise. It's a great promise that we want to trust and hold on to. Uh, but remember how the question came up in chapter 9 was, well, if God is so certain to keep his promises, then why didn't more of Israel get saved? Remember now, he's talking to a, a congregation with both Jews and Gentiles. 
And you have this, this really loud question that nobody's asking, which is, why weren't more Jews saved? If God promised to save them, where are they? Why didn't they believe? And so Paul tried to answer that. And if you remember last week, you know, the question was, did God's promise fail? No, it didn't fail. God's promise actually was fulfilled. Here's the problem. All Israel doesn't belong to Israel. In other words, just because someone is an ethnic Jew doesn't mean they're of true Israel. And what we found was that God, for his own purposes, sovereignly chooses people, and he gives them the gift of salvation. They are the children of promise. They are the ones that are receiving the promise. Now, you may be thinking right now, are you sure Paul's saying that? Well, I think I am because of the questions that come up following that. In other words, uh, Paul raises these two objections. That's what the sermon's about. The sermon's really two barrels. One is, they're saying, God, are you unjust? And then, God, why do you still blame us? Who can resist your will? So remember, last week I raised this question, God saves us sovereignly. He chooses those to whom he's going to save. And this should naturally bring up questions. Paul's a good teacher. He's taught this doctrine before. He knows people object to it. And how do they object? There must be injustice on God's part. How can he find me at fault? I can't resist his will. So these are the questions that come up. So I think we understand Paul very clearly. So I want to look at the sermon just in two ways. In 14 to 18, he's going to answer the question, is there injustice on God's part? And then in 19 through 23, 24, he's going to answer the question, why then does he still hold me blame with it? Is God fair? And we're going to say, yes, he is fair. So first question first, is there injustice on God's part? Now, again, it's not unexpected, right? Last week, verse 13, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That was before they had done anything good or bad. That was before they were born. So of course people are going to say, protest, this is unfair. They hadn't done anything right or wrong, and you're choosing one over the other. What gives? If I tell you that, if you hear that God sovereignly elects people, some, but not others, that, that God is free and sovereign uh, to call some children to be children of promise, but not others, would you not, too, say, whoa, whoa, foul? There's something wrong with that. Now, remember, and I brought this up last week, if, if salvation rested in your hand, if the decision was up to you, there'd be no question asked. There'd be no injustice. It's your own fault. You didn't believe them. It's your fault. So the fact that we're raising these questions means that Paul was saying, some are chosen by God and others are not. It's a hard message, I understand. And that's what brought up the question. So Paul's a good teacher. He's anticipating the question. He's bringing it up. So then, is there injustice on God's part? That's the question. Now, I'll say to you that no. He says, may it never be. By, by no means there is injustice on God's part. Now, let me, you, know, you gotta, this is going to be a wild ride. Because what he's going to do in 14 to 18, he's going to answer two things. He's going to say first that the God is just to save some. And we're going to see that in the example of Moses. And then, and then in the second half of this first section, God is just to bring judgment to some, and you're going to see that in Pharaoh in 18 and 19. Well, let's take Moses first, right? So he says to Moses in 16, he says, For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
Uh, now, this seems like an odd answer to a question. Is there injustice on God's part? And then you get this busted out. Well, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. It seems arbitrary. Let me remind you of the context. Here we are in Exodus 33. God had drawn the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt, slavery to Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness. They were going to learn of God. And it isn't a short minute before they're now back in idolatry, and they're worshiping a golden calf, and God's going to destroy them for their sin. And yet Moses says, no, have mercy on them. And then Moses goes a step further and says, show me your glory. Moses wants to know God. And so it says that God, his goodness, passed in front of Moses. And he proclaimed, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, what, what we learn here is that God wants to show his glory and power to the world by being free about who he exercises mercy to. That God is free and sovereign to be merciful to those whom he desires, and he's not unjust in it. And here's why. If you understand mercy, mercy is not deserved. Mercy is not an obligation. If you think that God, that, that God is obligated to give all people mercy, you don't understand mercy. Mercy is freely given with not contingent upon outside influence. In other words, you may be a religious person, you may go to church, you may tithe, you may serve in a ministry. That doesn't make you worthy to receive mercy. You might be worthy for wages, you might be worthy for some other form of compensation, but not for mercy. Mercy doesn't work that way. You can't earn mercy. God's not obligated to give mercy. And what we see here is that God saves on the basis of mercy, not justice. Not justice. In fact, John Stott makes it more clear. He says, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim mercy. It sounds like a complete illogical follow, but it's not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived. Because on the basis of which, because the basis of which God saves savingly, or, or which God deals savingly with sinners, is not justice, but mercy. In other words, justice, if you think that you can come to God with these various things you've done, and he ought to give you mercy, you're asking for justice. And if you want justice, then we're all condemned. We're all condemned if we want justice. In fact, the mystery of this passage is why would he give mercy to anyone? Mercy is freely given. So Paul's saying, no, there's no injustice on God's part. He can give mercy because of its mercy. He can give it as he desires. We're saved by mercy, by God giving us the undeserved gift of salvation. Now, let me give you an example. It's not perfectly analogous, but I think it will help. Tim Keller talks about a story in New York where a man had, had promised to pay the tuition of 20 people, four-year university, tuition free. He would pay that. And they had to submit an application. They had to seek and apply for this, for this gift. And uh, there were some requirements that don't make it like what I'm speaking about, but, but you, you can follow the example. Well, thousands applied, as you can imagine. Thousands applied for this. And, and they, did it all, they were all equal to each other. 
But but he just selected 20. That's what he was going to do. He was going to save 20, and he selected 20. But they all were equal. Now, the paper, when they spoke about the man, they didn't say he was unjust because he didn't do 40 or 50 or 80. They just said he was generous. They said it was an act of kindness. It was an act of mercy. But he didn't select them all. So, So when God exercises mercy... For mercy to be mercy, it doesn't have to be given to all. So Paul's saying he's not unjust. He chose to whom he would give mercy. Now look at the other side of the coin. This is part two of the first part. Uh, look, he turns, to Mo- he turns to Pharaoh now. Not only is God able to give mercy to those whom he desires, he is also able to bring judgment to those he desires. And he brings up this situation with Pharaoh. Look with me in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, actually it's God saying to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, uh, but, but, but Paul puts in here scripture, which speaks to you about the inspiration of scripture. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, so what he's saying here is that God raised up Pharaoh. God was just to raise up Pharaoh and and to use him as an instrument through which he would display his power and to proclaim his name. You remember the story in Exodus. In Exodus, God brought down all those plagues on the nation of Egypt. He crushed Egypt. He showed everybody his power by crushing Egypt. Everybody was clear he is a powerful God. And then he drew the nation of Israel out of Egypt, showing everybody the mercy. His name was proclaimed. You remember when Joshua went into Jericho, and Rahab says, we heard about this God. We heard about that God. We heard what he did to Egypt. His name was proclaimed in all the world. That that it is not unjust of God. What Paul's saying is it's not unjust of God to raise up a proud sinner and use him as a display of declaring his glory and power to the nations. That's what Paul's saying. He kind of repeats himself in, in 18 when he says, so he'll have mercy on whom he has, uh, he will have mercy on whomever he wills, and listen, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now this is a troubling part of the passage, one of the many. He hardens whomever he wills. And the word for harden means to to be unresponsive, unreceptive, disobedient to the world. That's to the word. That's what it means. And so it says, so is he saying here, and you should be asking this, is he saying, did God harden him and make him a sinner? I would say no. In the Exodus story, you have Pharaoh hardening himself in chapter 8. You have God hardening Pharaoh in chapter 9. So many people want to say, well, since Pharaoh hardened himself first, then God hardened him after, so it's not as bad. But it says in Exodus 4.21 that God said, I'll harden him. So who hardened who? Well, they both. They both did. God did harden him, and he did harden himself. In other words, what Paul's saying is, God did not make Paul sin. He didn't cause him to harden. He, he, didn't, he didn't coerce him to sin. Pharaoh is responsible for his own sin. So then how do we understand this hardening? Well, it's a difficult thing to explain. I, I would draw your minds back to Romans chapter 1, 24, when it says God gave them up. God is actively not intervening. 
In other words, God often will harden a person by stepping back and letting them continue on in the path of their destruction. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones words it. He says, the, word, the world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint on it. And this world would be complete chaos in hell if he did not do so. But the moment he draws back his restraining influence, there is a hardening. The withdrawal of the sun produces hardening ground. So that is one of the ways that God produces a hardening. He leaves them to, to themselves. Do you realize this? This is what we're talking about the world. That, that Paul's saying there is no injustice on God's part. He gives mercy to those whom he gives mercy, whoever he wills. And he hardens those whomever he wills. This is a strong message. Do you find injustice on God's part? I mean, right now are you thinking, this is really kind of unfair. I, I don't know that I know this God. Uh, let me just give you one warning. When we bring a charge against God, when we bring a charge against his justice, usually we feel that our rights have been violated. What rights has he violated of yours? How has he violated your rights? Because if we claim to want justice, and justice is what you will get, then you will be condemned. I will be condemned. Paul has already said, all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us have sinned. None of us seek God. All of our throats are open graves. Read chapter 3 of Romans. If we want justice, then we bring the wrath of God upon ourselves. To give mercy is not unjust. It's kind. But there's something in us, fundamental to us, that we don't like this idea of him getting to choose how he distributes his mercy. We don't like it. And you see this in the parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 20. Do you remember this parable? Jesus is teaching and he says, there's a man who owned a field. And he went into the city and he hired workers at 9 a.m. to work in the field for a denarius. Then he went back into the city at 12 o'clock to get more workers. And they went to work in the field. And then he went back at 3 o'clock. And then he even went back at 6 o'clock to get more workers. And then, of course, the sun sets, their day laborers, so they get their money at the end of the day, and so they gather together, and they all get a denarius. And those who worked earlier are now kind of grumbling. They're kind of angry at it. And here's what they say. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, the last worked only one hour, and you've made him equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master replied to them, friend, am I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do we begrudge God's generosity? When we find him in contempt over being sovereign, electing some to mercy, and yet bringing judgment on us, do we begrudge his generosity on those who receive mercy? I hope not, because many of us are recipients of that very generosity. So that's the first question. Did God move with injustice? No, he is sovereignly giving mercy to whom he wills and harden whom he wills. Okay, let's look at the next question, because that answer that Paul gave 
He'll have mercy on whom he has mercy. He'll harden whom he hardens. That sparks the next question that you see in 19. In 19, the question is, you will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Obviously, this kind of set-up dialogue of protest, he's speaking about Pharaoh. In other words, how can he find fault with Pharaoh? I mean, Pharaoh tries to stand up, he gets knocked down. He stands up, he gets knocked down. God keeps hardening him. I mean, why are you blaming Pharaoh if you keep hardening him? Now, I will remind you, this again shows that we understand Paul. Because if there was freedom among all of us to choose or not choose God, then Pharaoh would have his own choice, and he could exercise it the way he wanted. And if he didn't exercise it right, it's his own fault. But the fact that we're blaming God for Pharaoh means that God's sovereignly hardening Pharaoh. What do we do with this? Well, look at the answer. Paul gives it. In fact, it's not really an answer. It's really another question, and it's kind of a rebuke. And he says this in verse 20. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? I mean, God accepts humble investigation. No question about that. But arrogant accusation is a different thing altogether. This is not a question. This is a challenge. And what Paul is showing us is it's the absurdity of challenging God. I mean, for the clay, it is, as, it is ridiculous to think that inanimate clay has the authority and the wisdom and the power to challenge the animate potter. It's just as ridiculous for man to challenge God. I mean, if, if God has rights over all of creation, just like the potter has rights over all the clay. In other words, what we see here is we've become blind to this immeasurable gap that exists between God and man. Uh, Paul's point is simply this, that the potter has the right to take from one lump of clay something for honor and something for common use. He has that right because he's the potter and it's his clay. Who among us has the wisdom to challenge God on this? Who among us has the moral authority to challenge God? Who among us has the knowledge that his decisions and his prerogatives should pass over our desk as if we should weigh in and give a stamp of our approval to him? See, this was my problem at Gordon-Conwell when I was in the library. I remember the day like it was yesterday. I'm reading Romans 9. I'm struggling to understand it. And I read Romans 19, and, and I get excited because I understand, okay, he's going to answer my question. I, I've never felt like the page, just the, the verse jumped off the page at me. I'm like, I'm actually excited about 20. 20 is going to give me the answer that will solve my dilemma. And then I read this, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? I felt like a nuclear blast knocked me down. And I felt like, wow, I'm not going to get the answer I want. I, I'm not going to have that time at the table discussing with God why he does what he does. And, and it, it was, you know what my dilemma was? I forgot that I was clay. I, I forgot that I was, I was just a lump of clay on the potter's wheel. I forgot who I was. Do you, really, do you see yourself that way? I mean, do you really see yourself as clay? Do you see yourself as weak and dependent and contingent? Do you realize that you're contingent upon the very breath you draw? You and I were so precariously hanging in this life. I, if you bristle at this idea, 
what evidence do we have for being more than clay? I mean, think how temporal we are. I mean, you think about how history is swept clean of all the greats, of all the powerful people in the world. They're all gone. Uh, the, the ones that intimidate us now, whether it's political or geopolitical or national or international, they're going to be gone. Nobody lives forever. We all die. We all return to the dirt from which we've been brought forth. The temporal nature of man is profound. The days sweep by and God just sweeps men and women off the page of history. We're dirt. But, but if the temporal nature of man doesn't remind you of that, surely the carnality or the savagery nature of man. I mean, we seem to just, I remember coming out of seminary right into the Rwanda crisis, trying to understand that. Uh, these are men and women, the Tutsis and the Hutus, neighbors who love each other, are raping and murdering each other. I mean, it seems like men are just hell-bent on destroying one another. Every generation has that example. A and yet we feel that we're so advanced. Yeah, we got a smartphone. We haven't grown in any sort of morality. The same cycles are coming. I'm just trying to prove to you. Who are you to answer back to God? Now, again, I'm, not, I'm going to encourage humble investigation at the end of the sermon. I just think it's a humble investigation, not an arrogant accusation. You know, David Brainerd was the first missionary to the Indians in America in the 18th century. And uh, Jonathan Edwards put together his uh, diary. It's, it's not the most, you know, you're not going to be smiling all the way through the read. It's a little bit serious. Uh, but it's a wonderful book in terms of a man really taking his heart to task and seeking to serve God. Well, in his diary on February 3rd, 1743, here's what he wrote. He says, Oh, how amazing it is that people can talk so much about man's power and goodness when if God did not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. Do you feel that way? You know, what I've come to understand with uh, trying to discern people's salvation, most people, well, a lot of people can tell you what the gospel is. And if you say, what do you think the center of the Christian faith is? They can explain it to you. Uh, that, for me, a lot of people can do. That, that, that isn't always, for me, the critical element in discerning a person's faith. What I like to ask them is, what do you think of you? How would you describe yourself? Do you see yourself as a sinner, absolutely broken in half by sin? Do you see your massive need for the gospel? How do you view yourself? And the reason I do this is because of this parable that Jesus taught in Luke 18. If you remember this parable, uh, Jesus is talking about the pride of the Pharisees, and he says there's two men that went into the temple. One was a Pharisee, and he walks right to the front of the temple, and he looks up at God, and he says, thank God, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other sinners and tax collectors. I fast, I give a, I give a tithe of all that I have, even my herbs and my mint and my cumin, right? And then there's another man in the temple. He's a tax collector. He's in the back of the temple. He won't even look up at God. And he's just in the back, his head's down, he's beating his breast, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's the one, Jesus said, that went home justified. They probably knew the same thing theologically about the greatness of God, but one knew something about himself, the other did not. And that was that he was clay. So, so, so when Paul, when we, when we peer over and say, God, how can you hold us blameworthy if you're sovereign over there? He says, just hang on, just hold on. This is what God's saying to us. 
But then he furthers it. If you see the next question in 22, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, Paul's now going to further explain why he's not faultworthy, why God is not faultworthy. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, or make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, he says. Now, this is dizzying, if you really believe it. What, what Paul is saying is that God is enduring with patience the wicked of this earth. He's enduring with them because there will be a day when God brings his judgment on these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's going to bring his judgment on them. And that will be just. He will bring a just judgment on them. But in his bringing justice, his vessels of mercy will see the absolute riches of his glory to you. You will see how incredibly glorious God is through the judgment of the wicked. It's as if you take a handful of pearls or a handful of diamonds and you put them in, in this black velvet background. They jump off. The beauty of the diamonds jumps off to you, set against the blackness of the velvet. So your salvation, the glory of God, his mercy in your life will jump to you in ways that you can understand when you see what you have been spared from because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You will be overwhelmed. It is staggering that God would use the judgment to show the glory. And that's what's to leave us just wondering. How could God do it? Why does he do it? One author said that the consciousness of human beings needs this. We need this. It, it's kind of like you appreciate. He said you appreciate the warmth and the beauty and the tenderness of a, of a warm spring day after you've come out of the cold, long blast of winter. It, that's what God's going to do. There's going to be a day that you will see his glory in ways that you cannot even imagine now by virtue of what people will endure that you have not because Christ has endured that. Causes our affections to swell for the Son of God. Notice what he says there. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared. And it's going to come through these vessels of wrath. Now, this is difficult. This is really difficult theology here. It, it, I don't want you to look and say, well, are you saying that God said, hey, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And I'm just going to create these people so that I can use them as just punish them so that they're really happy what they're not getting. I, you could read it that way if it was one-dimensional. I want to try to nuance it a little bit. You know, the nature of sin is why people are being punished. Wayne Grudem, a New Testament theologian, writes it this way, and it brings nuance to the text that I think is needed. 
He says, so in Scripture, the cause of election, if you're a Christian here and you've been elect by God's grace, the cause of election lies with God as an active agent. God moves to you through the Spirit, waking you up to your sin, seeing the help of the gospel, and then you believe. So, so your salvation rests in God alone. He says, so in Scripture, the cause of election lies with God as an active agent. And the cause of reprobation lies in the sinner. The basis of election is God's mercy, whereas the basis of reprob reprobation is God's justice. I like the word reprobation as opposed to predestining people to hell. Reprobation seems to nuance what the overall tenor of the scriptures are, which is that our sin, our sin leaves us in judgment before God. You know, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says to them, uh, you're not children of God because you do not believe. He puts on them the responsibility for failing to believe. So I, I don't want us to just try to read this and say, how can I believe in a... No, no, no. The cause of judgment is the sin of man. God is sovereign over both. This is the mystery. But it rests with the sin of man. Now, does this challenge your view of God? Have I, have I just really damaged your understanding of God being a loving God? It, it, it may cause some of you to be challenged. I, I just want you to... I want you to see that what Paul is doing here, he's instructing us. He, he's not trying to win our approval. He's not trying to say, I hope you feel this. Is, I hope you're going to be okay with this. He, he, he's not trying to get us to agree with him. He's just saying, this is the God of the Bible. He is a sovereign God who gives mercy as he desires and who brings judgment and justice on those who've sinned. This is the God of the Bible. And this is why at the end of chapter 11, this very difficult part of Romans, we're all going to say these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. That's not just a phrase in the Bible. Do you believe that? From him through him and to him are all things. He is absolutely sovereign over all these things. And that's why we run to him, for mercy. So we have these two charges. The nature of man says, is there injustice with God? He says, no, there's no injustice. Is he fair or is he unfair? No, he's very fair. So this doctrine, I, I don't want to just instruct you from the scriptures. I, I want you to, to walk out of here seeing this is good news. This is good news. Why is it good news? It's good news because sovereign election helps you worship God. If God alone has saved you, then he alone deserves your affections and your love and your worship. Listen, if you think you helped him, if you made the right decision when you heard the gospel, if you added even a little bit, then a little bit you should also get. You should get a little bit of credit. But have you ever asked yourself, why did you become a Christian? Why do you believe? And why didn't others who were near you or like you, why didn't they believe? What was it about you? Was it you're smarter, more noble? You're more of an opportunist? What's different about you from them? You're forced to say, it was God. 
Otherwise, you have to say, well, I was brighter than my brother. But nobody would say that, and I don't think we really think that. It humbles us, but it lifts us up in worship. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and what is despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that is God, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, if God has truly saved you, if he's made all the difference, then he alone is the one you worship. So let me give you an example. Charles Spurgeon uh, was preaching in his autobiography. Uh, he tells the story about when he was preaching to a group of Methodist ministers. Now, a Methodist minister would not believe what I've just preached. They would believe in, in a greater amount of freedom for your will. And so in his preaching, this is what he says. I don't know if I share these with you because they make it clear or I just love them, but, but hopefully it's both. He says this, he's preaching and they're, they're, they're very much into everything that he's saying. He says, at last a part of the text led me to what is called high style doctrine. So I said, this brings me to the doctrine of election. There was a deep drawing of breath. Now, my friends, you believe it. They seem to say, no, we don't. He says, but you do, and I'll make you sing hallelujah over it. I will so preach it to you that you will acknowledge it and believe it. So I put it thus way. Is there no difference between you and other men? Yes, they said. There is a difference between what you were and what you are now? Oh, yes, they said. There is sitting by your side a man who has been to the same chapel as you have, heard the same gospel, and yet he's unconverted and you are converted. Who has made the difference, yourself or God? The Lord, they said. He said, yes, I cried. And that is the doctrine of election. That is what I contend for, that if there be a difference, the Lord made the difference. Here's what I want you to hear. So a good man came up to me and said, you're right, lad, you're right. I believe the doctrine of election. I do not believe it as it's preached by some people, but I believe that we must give glory to God. Here's what he said. And we must put the crown on the right head. We must put the crown on the right head. When you look at your salvation, upon whose head do you place that crown? Sovereign election leads us to worship God alone for his mercy, alone. Sovereign election also provides for us an assurance. Secondly, it provides for us an assurance that salvation will be final and will be complete. Listen, if Sovereign election is true. You have been chosen by God. Nothing in yourself has done it. It's all been by his choice, which means when you falter, when you fail, when you backslide, you will not be disqualified. That God has chosen you for his own purposes, and hell itself will not be able to thwart his purpose in bringing you to himself. Now, this doesn't invite us into a life of entitlement or sin. It invites us into finally resting that he doesn't love me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. God delights in giving sovereign election to his vessels of mercy. God actually predestined us in love. So you can rest assured that the security of your sovereign election rests in him alone. In fact, one author said, the roots of his election mercy 
go deep into the councils of eternity. They were fashioned and formed long before the world even existed. You will see him. There's an assurance that only comes from sovereign election. Without sovereign election, you can turn tail and run at the end. But not one will I lose that has been given to me, Jesus said. Thirdly, sovereign election makes missions effective. I mean, do you think that the mission of the church, the gospel being preached to the world, do you think that's based upon our eloquence, our wisdom, or the openness of the listener? No, no, no. The whole move of missions, the global plan that God has to bring about his glory to the world is because of sovereign election. God has elected those to salvation. That's why I told Paul to stay to stay in the town, that, that he had people there. Even though Paul was facing persecution, he was told to stay. No, I've chosen people there. So it fuels missions. And we're going to see this particularly in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is going to focus more on our role going, but it's all fueled by sovereign, sovereign election. And, and then I just have two more. Sovereign election, by the way, is not the only word on salvation. Listen, divine sovereignty is clear in this passage, but there is human responsibility. We are not fatalists. Our actions matter. Our choices have consequences. One author said it this way, if Jacob is saved, he's saved by faith. If Esau is condemned, it is for sin and unbelief. Our final judgment will be in accord with our response to the gospel. Faith in Christ remains necessary for salvation, and it is the outworking of our election. Damnation is the outworking of hardness and persistent unbelief. Underneath each is God's free and unconditional election. Our choices are real. His choice is determinative. There's a mystery there I can't untangle for you. But they're both operation. It's like Spurgeon said, you know, it's like a pulley, you know, if you want to get up to the top of the barn, you can't grab one side of the rope. You got both. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, you need both. They're both in Scripture. And then last, I would say that sovereign election helps us make sense of conversion. It helps us make sense of conversion. How do we understand how people come to faith? I mean, some of, of you have come to faith through tragedy. Someone died. Someone, some of you have come to faith through intellect. You just reasoned it out. Some of you have come to faith through loneliness. Some of you have come to faith through the example of someone that was really good. Some of you have come to faith through the example of someone who's really bad. There's no rhyme or reason how people come to faith. Some of you will cross a field and find a treasure just unknowingly and you sell everything you have to get the treasure. Others of you are looking for a fine pearl and when you finally find it, then you'll sell everything you have. It's different. What sovereign election shows is God saves in the way he saves. There's no formula. There's no, here's four laws that you've got to believe to come here. There's no formula for how people are saved. The leader I had when I was overseas, he came to faith because he walked out of a bar drunk and he stepped on a piece of gum which stepped on a track and he picked it up and he read it and he was converted. How go figure. How do you do that sort of thing? That's just the style of God. He saves as he saves. And we will rejoice forever at all the varied ways he saved us. So we have these two objections. Is there injustice on God's part? He says, no, may it never be. He's too righteous to be unjust. So why does he find fault? Is he unfair? No, he's not unfair. He sovereignly saves those in his generosity that he does, and he brings righteous judgment on those who have sinned. 
we just stand and we say, God, you must be praised. Let's take a minute. And, and I would just remind you before we pray too, if, if this causes deep consternation still on your soul, then, then come forward and ask or ask one of the staff or the elders. Uh, this is something that, you know, for me, when I came to terms with God being God, it caused, it's like a lens through which you look at things differently and it has made the difference in my life. It's made the difference in my marriage. It's made the difference in the way I understand scriptures. God is first in all these things. Let's pray for wisdom to walk in light of it.